0: Hello and welcome to episode number 150 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, September 29th, 2014. So here we are at 150 episodes, and I have a special guest for you today in David Holmgren. For a wide-ranging conversation about a number of issues uh, facing the permaculture community and facing humanity in general as we move towards an uncertain future. This interview was recorded in the early hours of the morning here in the United States. Uh, It was still dark out and it was um, in the evening in Australia. So I think that the time of day for both of us kind of created a philosophical atmosphere, and I think that comes across in the conversation. This is a great interview, and I hope that you enjoy it. It's the first in a two-part series, and the next part, of course, will be out next week, so stay tuned for that as well. In the course of the interview, you will hear David refer to the GFC a couple of times, and just so you don't take a pause to try to figure out what that is, He's referring to the global financial crisis of 2008. If you like this podcast and the work that I do, please consider donating so that I can continue to provide more great interviews with people like David Holmgren, and I am providing these interviews to everyone for free. So if you would like to donate, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right hand corner of the page agroinnovations.com. Now enjoy my interview with David Holmgren. On this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast, we are joined by the co-originator of the permaculture design science, author, and futurist David Holmgren. David, welcome to the Agro Innovations podcast. Good to talk to you, Frank. So, let's start by having you tell us about Meliodora.
1: Ah, well, Meliodora is our home uh, in a small village of Hepburn Springs in central Victoria, about 120 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. Uh, So we're in a cool temperate climate and uh, in an area that is, I suppose, one of those areas where... um, People came in the back-to-the-land uh, movement in the 70s, uh, quite a cosmopolitan sort of culture for a, a rural town. Um, and Meliador itself is just under a hectare. It's on the edge of the, the town with uh, rural and wild land uh, on some of, some of the boundaries And some of that uh, larger area, which we call the Spring Creek Community Forest, has involved us working on public land as well beyond uh, the boundaries. But Meliodora is really uh, our home and permaculture uh, demonstration site. Uh, We run guided tours here. And we've never aimed to be commercial producers, uh, really just to provide for our own needs. But Meliodora certainly produces a lot more than um, just what the residents consume. Uh, but we're in that sort of funny space of not really being a commercial producer. But, uh, you know, when fruit uh, production and harvest is uh, two and a half ton. <laughs> it's uh, obviously uh, something that you've got to sort of deal with somehow. And how do you how do you deal with it? Uh, well, a lot of that actually goes into the household economy uh, with feeding woofers and uh, people coming on courses and tours. We do sell. Uh, a bit, some of that to uh, local outlets, some of it through uh, an informal food share system that Sue organises here, mainly as our place being a drop-off point for a a friend of ours who's a leading local organic producer and uh, our place is one of the drop-off points for his boxes and sometimes we're selling things as well um, along with that. There's also a sort of dry goods food share. So we're involved in a number of levels in trying to uh, stimulate uh, both the local uh, organic permaculture commercial production, but also probably more so the household and community resilience side of the, the food system. Of course, permaculture has focused a lot on rebuilding that um, uh, household side of the, you know, the non-monetary economy. Um, and I suppose that's always been very important aspect for me because we're historically at a point where the amount people do for themselves... Uh, relative to getting their needs through the monetary economy, is um, at a historical low ebb, and that's a very you know unsustainable place to be. So, we try and sort of model that greater degree of household self-reliance and uh, stimulate and encourage others to do it too.
0: How has your approach and thinking about permaculture? evolved over time. I mean, you've been doing this for many years now, and I'm sure your thinking around this has changed as you've done it.
1: Well, of course, it's been my whole adult life. Uh, I met Bill Mollison when I was studying environmental design in 1974, and my thinking in what was a very radical and free... Uh, academic course was starting to centre on the intersection between landscape architecture as a design profession, uh, agriculture and the science of ecology. And I could see where two of those uh, very different (laughs) things overlapped, but I couldn't see where all three overlapped. And for me, that was that starting point that became permaculture but um, I suppose that was uh, so many years ago that not only has my thinking evolved but permaculture has taken a life of its own uh, well beyond uh, the original um, uh, tentative ideas and I think that can be attributed to the, initially the, the work that Bill Mollison did in in spreading the ideas through permaculture design courses. And so now, in being a global uh, movement and uh, teaching system, uh, in some ways I am, I am reacting and a, am a commentator on permaculture uh, a, as much as its um, uh, creator Um, So I think that dynamic uh, is sort of um, very complex. But I suppose the thing for me is that when I was young, I really was focused on let's just create the world we do want, Uh, forget about all the theory, the abstraction, um, (laughs) uh, more... It's just get out and, and do it. And so that active, activist side of permaculture um, was very strong. And for me, it was a bit of a reaction to growing up in a political activist uh, family where, you know, the issues were struggling against the world we don't want. I suppose... In recent decades, I've been become more reflective uh, looking at the larger structural patterns that govern where society is going. And I suppose in a way that's a shift from the practical doing to looking more at the theoretical aspects. And I think... Uh, my book Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability did sort of, uh, that was published in 2002, did change a bit my reputation in the permaculture movement because I had this reputation of being a practical, quiet person who was sort of very down to earth with my hands in the soil and (laughs) whatever, and uh, whereas that book showed that I'm really a a conceptual thinker. And I think that's always been the case. But when I was young, I, I had, I think, the foresight to understand that to ground all the abstraction of ideas, you needed to have your hands in the soil, you needed to do practical things, you needed to experiment with your ideas by experimenting on yourself. Uh, rather than so much, you know, telling people what, how society should be uh, reorganised. So, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I suppose that's a very sort of roundabout and all-over-the-place response. There's a, a lot of things that that could be said structurally that are not just of of my work, but how permaculture has become to some extent a theory of everything, and has moved from agriculture to culture, though Mollison highlighted that in Permaculture 2, which was published in 1979. So the the idea that we were talking about sustainable culture as well as sustainable agriculture was sort of clear from fairly early on. But some people would say in attempting to become a theory of everything, it's sort of... um, failed to address some of the address well some of the original uh, core ideas to do with redesigning agriculture and I think there's there's definitely you know some truth in that
0: well you just described yourself as a conceptual thinker and a theorist especially in some of your later work and you have written uh, three, I think, very influential essays, or one of them uh, is a full-length book at this point, over the past uh, several years. Let's start with your book, Future Scenarios. Can you summarize the arguments of your book, Future Scenarios?
1: Yeah, the first uh, point about future scenarios is is it was uh, identifying what I'd flagged in principles and pathways, that permaculture was predicated that we were moving into uh, a future that I called energy descent uh, to make some distinction from the more extreme notions of civilizational collapse to something more akin to the decline of the Roman Empire. Uh, so that we would go through a process of deindustrialization and ruralization uh, over time, obviously with crises and shocks uh, on the way down in the same way that there'd been uh, crises and spurts of growth on the, on the way up. Um, and that this aspect of the future was uh, tended to be ignored between the notions of uh, business as usual, what I call the techno-explosion future, and then the bargaining with the devil of the uh, can we have a steady state future, please, which really came out of the the Club of Rome limits to growth, one sweet scenario where the future stabilises. And then... More or less just the default to, oh, well, if those don't happen, then it's the end of the world in some cataclysmic way. So I was suggesting that what's much more likely is some sort of energy descent future. And so I wanted in that book to explore the different ways in which um, energy descent could unfold using a scenario planning model and as I saw it, the two most powerful and fundamental drivers in that energy descent, two variables that were powerful drivers were the peaking of uh, oil production and uh, climate change. And so with rapid onset of climate change versus relatively slow benign onset and rapid depletion of oil production uh, post-peak compared with uh, a more gradual depletion, you end up with four uh, different combinations. And I was suggesting these weren't so much choices that humanity uh, would or even could make, but they were more uh, part of larger system dynamics that would then express themselves through economics, uh, cultural change, Uh, geopolitics, and those four uh, scenarios I call brown tech, green tech, earth steward and lifeboat. The lifeboat and the earth steward scenarios, most people would consider those to be uh, collapse scenarios because they certainly are fairly severe. And I suggest these scenarios in the book will all... Uh, begin to emerge within the next ten to forty years. So that was back in two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Um, the book came out. Um, the work wasn't published till two thousand and eight. And the green tech and brown tech scenarios seem the uh, perhaps more likely. Scenarios, But that's partly because we could sort of comprehend them maybe of how we could get from our current world to those scenarios. Whereas the more severe scenarios, it's um, harder to imagine uh, those possibilities. But I wanted to sort of flesh out the way the different aspects of these scenarios could be emerging simultaneously um, in different places uh, and also how they were partly scale-based models that one could nest one within the other. So I suggested, for example, if you're thinking about these issues at home and with your family, you're thinking about what are we going to eat? Are we going to be safe? They're actually classic lifeboat strategies. Whereas if you're thinking about this at a level of an international corporation, doing scenario planning then the sort of strategies and responses actually fit very well into what we might call the brown tech scenario so I was suggesting that these uh, ways of seeing the future are partly uh, a product of the scale at which we are operating uh, the, the level of power and of course many of us might be have one foot in uh, at two different scales, what we might do at home and what we might do in our work, for example, might be um, dealing with these different aspects of the future where one side can't talk to the other side. It's almost like we have this sort of schizophrenic uh, view of the the future. So I wanted to put a lot of those things out in a way that would provide insights for permaculture activists to better refine their strategies uh, and tactics, to sort of have a a bit of an over-the-horizon sense of what might be coming, because I'd found over the years that talking about these sorts of things, I found people would say to me, oh, you mean Mad Max, and I'd never seen this movie even though it was made not far from where I live. (laughs) And um, when I eventually did see it, um, thinking, oh, dear, a 1970s road movie as an intellectual reference point for how we think about um, uh, a society uh, going through some sort of uh, unravelling or um, reduction in in its capacities. So... It's really trying not so much uh, sort of idle intellectual gazing, but to really try and distill the thinking that had really informed permaculture, because permaculture itself, of course, was informed by the the Club of Rome Limits to Growth work in the the 70s and was really predicated on uh, a notion that Over some time scale, society would end up um, simpler rather than more complex, uh, re-ruralized, and by some process or other, world population would decline back to a base that could be supported uh, after the exhaustion of fossil fuels.
0: Well, that comment is a nice segue into my next question. Money versus oil. What does this mean?
1: Well, I suppose um, in the period uh, leading up to the, the uh, Copenhagen uh, Climate Conference in 2009, I saw a lot of environmentalists and social activists putting their hope in uh, essentially the bankers and the, the financial people who'd sort of got on board with the uh, the realities of climate change and were enthusiastically pursuing the idea of global carbon trading. And I noticed that al- although a lot of environmental and uh, social activists weren't actually, uh, you know, so happy about the the cap and trade compared with the cap and share ideas, that they are adopting this um, sort of, Uh, sort of faith that the bankers were going to save us, uh, whereas the bad boys were the people who dig the stuff out of the ground, the oil and the coal companies. And I really um, wrote that essay to say that money and oil were really the, the quintessential extremities of Uh, global capitalism in a sort of a superficial sense a bit like left-right politics but much more fundamental and that the synergy between uh, money and real those who extract real wealth from the earth uh, the the bankers and the oil people was really what made uh, capitalism tick but as as that system becomes more and more unsustainable, these two sides of the system are actually now starting to fight each other uh, for the control of the system. And so we see this going back and forth that uh, I regard the Bush administration was really a coup by the boys that dig stuff out of the ground, that they're saying we create real wealth um, and we will determine... Um, what's important, and that ironically the Obama administration was really a coup by the bankers (laughs) Um, more than anything Uh, because the bankers represent this belief in human brilliance that we can negotiate anything, we can create the world uh, we want out of uh, human creativity and we're not limited by uh, the forces of nature. And, of course, there's some truth in, in both sides of this, and permaculture itself has um, that uh, balance between those things too, the recognition of the limits of nature and also the creativity, uh, human creativity is an incredible wellspring for innovation, possibilities and, in fact, uh, ongoing evolution of, uh, of life on Earth. But I was suggesting in that that really both sides of this struggle for power in global capitalism were really uh, two dinosaurs fighting each other and we needed to be aware of of the, the dangers of that fight but not really be aligning ourselves uh, to either side. Now, of course, this was before the Occupy movement, which did introduce again a reaction against the bankers and the money people and, and in some ways uh, emulating what I was saying, that, you know, they are as problematic as, as the, the, the people who dig the stuff out of the ground. I suppose some people would not see any difference between th- these two sides, that they're basically one and the same thing and And that's really what I'm claiming in in that essay that they're ve- really very very different cultures and belief systems uh, drive these uh, two sides I mean the, the bankers and money is just one aspect of a larger faith in what I call human brilliance that includes the diplomats um, so many people. Uh, in academia, in the humanities, uh, the economists, of of course, uh, that believe we we can negotiate our way through anything, and we can uh, the wealth basically comes from human creativity. And uh, there's not so many people on the other side of the equation. There's the farmers and the people who are connected to nature, who sort of understand that wealth comes out of the ground. And interestingly, the military people often uh, fall into that um, understanding that, you know, power comes from holes in the ground and those who control the holes in the ground, those who have the guns around the holes in the ground, uh, you know, determine the the world. So we can see, uh, certainly in Australian politics, Uh, The changes in leadership in both the mainstream parties have been this uh, constant fighting between these two sides. Um, And, uh, you know, at the moment, the people who dig stuff out of the ground have definitely got the upper hand in this country.
0: So in the permaculture community, where is, is there a happy medium in this um, polemic? Is there a place that we can sit and feel comfortable? I mean, obviously there are aspects of both of these ideologies or these philosophies that are distasteful, but also aspects that reflect the reality in the world. I mean, where do you uh, fall on this spectrum?
1: Well, I suppose I've always been one emphasizing the... uh, the biological uh, limits that govern human systems, that the, the ignorance of that in the modern world is so breathtaking. The ignorance of uh, energetics of, of thermodynamics, the, the knowledge that any peasant peoples understood implicitly uh, is missing in our society because we're so distanced from food production and uh, the basics. Uh, so, a lot of that um, uh, ecological literacy uh, that underpins permaculture has been a passion for me to to teach and communicate that. So, I think if you look at it in terms of the co-originators of permaculture, although uh, Mollison was a, 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 a trained ecologist, I, I would see him as more strongly emphasising the, that creative, innovative aspect of permaculture, that that permaculture is neither uh, a labour or capital intensive, but it's um, design and information intensive and that this house somehow sort of uh, releases us from the constraints of uh, natural limits. I do see human creativity and design as an enormous asset for humanity at the moment. But I suppose my perspective on that is that that is also, in itself, a byproduct of fossil fuel. The creativity that that has come from people in an affluence and free society being able to experiment and have extended adolescence and engage in all sorts of activities, most of which will just end up in the dustbin of history as a whole lot of waste and uh, useless consumption. But there has been, at the same time, a whole lot of creative experimentation. And the knowledge and experience that comes from that in it being in people's heads is not like a material asset that depletes the way uh, uh, oil does or uh, depreciates the way the infrastructure of a a steel bridge does. But it does still depreciate because as you move into energy descent, into a world of contraction, the ability to constantly innovate and experiment will decline, perhaps over many generations, but it will decline because in the distant future, people will do what the grandfathers have worked out is the right way to do things because to deviate too much is too much risk that things go wrong. And, of course, that's where our traditions in the past were. The the wisdom that was built up then became embedded in traditions and institutional forms where you follow that pattern because it's well proven. But I suppose I'm suggesting in principles and pathways that, Energy descent means we're dealing with a world in the future where each generation will have to do something different from the previous generations because the world will be constantly changing but not in the direction it has been changing. So the imperative for innovation will remain but the resources to support innovation will be declining. And, and that's that uh, how how does permaculture start to distill down the very expensive institutional processes we've had for innovation like uh, scientific research and um, institutional structures that have uh, required huge wealth to support, to package that down into the, uh, the practical jack-of-all-trades Innovator who uh, can be, you know, living and working on the smell of an oily rag and yet uh, generating uh, useful, not just useful information, but working models that can be refined uh, and extended um, uh, from the working from the successes.
0: Isn't part of this also related to diminishing returns on scientific discovery and technological innovation. And when I say that, I mean, I mean I look back at someone like Michael Faraday, who had amazing discoveries throughout the course of his life. But if you look at the things he was actually doing, they were super simple. I mean, it was low-hanging fruit, putting a magnetic field through a, a coil of metal and discovering the creation of electricity. I mean, these things were pretty basic, but their implications were profound. Now we are at the point where we yep. have to build these huge uh, particle physics colliders that cost billions of dollars to make a new discovery in physics or science.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's definitely some of the, the, the structural limits of, uh, of of complexity, but there's also a lock in where both the ways of researching and experimenting and what are considered Uh, things worth looking at, uh, become ossified. Uh, So I remember back in the early 80s, um, one of the pioneers of the land care movement saying to me, look, we've got 80% of Australia's uh, agricultural geneticists working on wheat when we don't even know anything about Australia's 500 wattle species or our native grasses, and so that sort of lock-in where we sort of try and do squeeze the last little bits out of processes that we've become focused on and ignore the opportunities that there still are for, if you like, the Michael Faraday-type activities, but just off to one side. Uh, and I suppose that's, that was part of the original uh, suggestion with tree crop research um, behind the, the perennial agriculture aspect of, of permaculture that, hey, we've got all these uh, trees that have been barely selected. Um, if we put work into that and developing the systems of management, that might produce more return than endlessly working at how to um, squeeze a bit more production out of uh, the same overbred, um, overcommitted uh, agricultural crops that are the basis of the, uh, you know, the current global food system.
0: Not too long ago, you wrote an essay called Crash on Demand. Tell us about the central thesis of this essay.
1: Well, it's interesting and maybe it's a sort of fault in the essay but there were sort of really two uh, large ideas in the essay and one was picked up and um, there was a lot of reaction to it and maybe that was uh, because of the, the choice of the, the title. Uh, but I wanted to first uh, point out that... Part of that essay was saying, look, we are in the brown tech energy descent future, uh, that quite some years before I suggested these uh, scenarios would unfold, I could already see so many factors globally that we were in the brown tech scenario, which is rapid onset of climate change and uh, relatively uh, slow decline in oil post peak, uh, probably because the, the GFC um, took the, the heat out of uh, global consumption enough to stop a uh, super price spike uh, and um, uh, resulting oil shock impacts. So that I was really suggesting that that brown tech world Uh, understanding its dynamics was really important because it it looks like that's where we're heading. And then as a consequence, I was also looking at the evidence that a lot of people in the climate activism scene were getting to the point basically of giving up, that they uh, were moving into the... Uh, we've got to adapt to climate change view or just, um, uh, I suppose, literally giving up and uh, losing energy uh, completely. And I thought there's so many people, productively uh, capable people, that where is all that energy going to go? And I was suggesting that the permaculture activism of just focused on creating the world we uh, do want and at the small scale and not trying to leverage uh, large-scale policy change uh, was a more productive area to work in. But when you suggest that to people who've been working at that attempt to leverage larger systems, their constant reaction is that what you do at the small scale in the end doesn't really make any difference. So there's that very strong belief that you've got to have some ability to influence the large systems. And I was putting out there that it's just possible that by a very strong outbreak of uh, self-reliance from a significant proportion, but not uh, uh, anything more than a minority, of the global middle class, that if a significant proportion of those people radically reduced their consumption, disconnected from the systems of, of global destruction and focused on their own household and community self-reliance, that that process itself might end up pulling enough resources out of a fragile global financial system that it could cause a, a crash of the global financial system and that only a crash of the global financial system could really save us from climate change. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a number of uh, uh, assumptions there, and I was not suggesting that it was um, necessarily uh, likely that that activism would would change radically uh, the likelihood of um, uh, financial collapse. Or that financial collapse would necessarily save us uh, from climate change. But it seemed to have a lot better prospects than anything else. And I mean, this was built on my observation that after the GFC, environmental activists weren't shouting, hey, for the first time in 30 decades of activism, we actually have had a, a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, and yet that was the reality it's only economic contraction that is proven to reduce greenhouse gas emissions there is no proof that some renewable energy economy or any other mechanism will actually do that all of that is 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 theory whereas we do know that when economies contract uh, that energy consumption goes down and greenhouse gas emissions do uh, go down as well, so I suppose I was suggesting the idea of deliberately crashing the the global financial system that seemed so outrageous as a, a sort of a public discussion was valid because so many of the climate activists were talking in such extreme rhetoric about the end of civilization, or uh, the end of humanity, or even the end of life on Earth—type of language. So, <laughs> if the problem is really that large <laughs> and and that severe, um, the possibility that uh, you know we could avoid the worst of that by uh, collapsing uh, the global financial system seems to me something that should be being discussed
0: well doesn't i mean i i hear what you're saying in terms of people focusing on self-reliance and resilience but the even those people who have somewhat withdrawn from the market economy are still beholden to it i mean is it how realistic is it to think that people can do that
1: well that's because the degree to which people are doing that is not actually very radical. My observation is that, you know, maybe there's 20% of the population are sort of maybe motivated by values and ideals um, rather than what is the herd doing and what is the hip pocket nerve feeling uh, and then about half of those will actually do anything to reflect those values and ideas, and within those that do um, most are still feel very constrained one way or another um, so and of course, when you start saying this uh you know um you leave yourself open to people pointing out that I'm talking to you on Skype on a computer and, um, you know, that's made by a global corporation and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But I suppose after 30 years of basically living below the poverty line and yet managing to still be someone of some influence in the world, I've never pursued a path of maximising power trying to maximise my influence in the world. I've always balanced that with the idea of that I actually don't want to participate in these uh, destructive systems and I also want to live a life that's actually enjoyable and empowered. And so that does involve uh, going against the grain of uh, measures of what constitutes success uh, and questioning, and not just questioning, but, uh, you know, not participating in, in, in some of those systems. So I wouldn't suggest that, um, you know, we've been really extreme in that, but over the years I've seen that, yeah, people don't really shift that much uh, because it's all so comfortable um to just be in uh, the bubble of, uh, of that system. But, for example, um, when people have children and those children grow up a bit, I notice how conservative people come about things like university education. And, you know, I could get really scathing about uh, um, the education system and how dysfunctional what is being taught to people for the world they're actually going to face. And, of course, that depends on that informed by my view of this energy descent future. So I think, you know, young people need to learn practical skills, need to learn uh, some sort of skill that they can trade with another person in a small marketplace directly rather than putting their card in the slot and becoming part of some... Uh, larger structure but I see a lot of people who sort of have those understandings of the world and then still go along the pathway of uh, supporting and encouraging um, you know their children to take on debt in uh, university uh, degrees that you know for jobs that have no future. Now I mean, just taking that example, a lot of people are now starting to see that problem. But I can remember articulating this uh, when my partner's uh, children were um, going from school to university in the 80s. (laughs) And, uh, you know, they live in a world in Europe that is now starting to unravel perhaps a lot later than i expected it would but nevertheless those processes are at work so if people do have uh, a belief about the the dynamics of energy descent and have some value position about how we participate in those systems and what legacy we want to leave for future generations and also have some genuine notion of how they want to live. You know, do they want to live, you know, constantly servicing some debt beholden to structures that they have no control over? Or do they want to take the enormous opportunities that we have in so many places to act Uh, according to our own values. So I think, um, I I believe it is possible for a significant uh, number of people who are part of that billion or so middle class people on the planet, who are after all the engine of global destruction, uh, more than the very small numbers of um, the elite, uh, that could take their life into their own hands. But so few people actually do that. So I'm not, I wouldn't sort of hold my breath (laughs) that, you know, there would be that radical change, but this idea that a relatively small number of people making that change could leverage the system is based on... uh, evidence that the system depends on people's continued consumption and relatively uh, small reductions in consumption radically affect the the system. I first saw that in the 1970s in a previous crisis of the Australian car industry where um, the captains of industry were complaining because Australians weren't buying cars quite as frequently. And I thought, oh, is the system so vulnerable to relatively small reductions in consumption? And of course it is. Whereas when we look at majority politics and the attempt to uh, get mass movements to bring about change in society, you don't just need 50% of the population on side to get a major structural change against the interests of the elite. You probably need 80 or 90% as we've seen through involvement in various wars and uh, whatever. So I see that mass movement uh, uh, politics is is basically an old uh, way of bringing about societal change and that uh, people acting that what they do personally does make an impact, uh, but it makes most impact if it's um, a radical change that can be modelled by others. Because if what we do gives us a benefit and is something that others can copy, then we have the chance that there's also the ability to sort of build a discussion that can lead to some sort of political leverage. Because I think the idea of a global movement shouting for uh, those in power to pull the levers of power in a different way um, has been shown to be um, uh, ineffective. So the issue is, you know, what other uh, ways are there to work? And, I mean, those arguments are, are significant to... Activists, but sometimes when you suggest permaculture is actually a political strategy that starts with the basis that those who act do something that benefits themselves first, that somehow is seen in the activist world as invalid because if you're doing something for yourself, then you can't be doing something um, for the benefit of the world. And to me, any any movement uh, that's going to bring about change, there needs to be uh, a benefit directly to those who act first because those who act first are working against the tide of society. There are a lot of disincentives and a lot of difficulties, but there's also some incredible advantages in being... Uh, the early adopters or experimenters. So to what extent is
0: your thinking, as I listen to you talk, I think of Gandhi with his spinning wheel and saying, you know, in different language a bit maybe, but saying many of the same things that you're saying now. How much has Gandhi influenced your thinking?
1: Uh, In in a broad sense, uh, there's that... um, uh, influence, and yes, I, I think the uh, the the simple, self reliant lifestyle is enormously empowering, and it. I think in Gandhi's time, and for a mass of people who were not part of a a global middle class. Consumers, the leverage of each person acting, living a simple life was actually far less potent back then than it can be now. Because each one of us, as uh, people in the affluent world, um, have enormous uh, uh, leverage through just uh, the way we live and what we consume and what we choose to buy and what we choose to support uh, and what we uh, uh, choose to do. Um, And I suppose my experience has been that by living that way, that has actually increased my influence in the world, ironically, instead of spending all my time, you know, going around the world, teaching and um, maximising power in influencing the world and ending up being in hotels and all sorts of sort of horrible places and things that I didn't want to do, that by apparently um, just uh, living a simple life and enjoying that, that model, I think, is, is actually more... Uh, inspirational and, and provides more leverage of influence than, uh, than doing anything else.
0: That concludes part one of my interview with permaculture co-originator David Holmgren. Stay tuned. Next week, we will delve into some of the recurring themes on this podcast over the past several weeks, and I think you will find some of David's ideas and approaches to some of these issues, very instructive. I'd like the listeners to know that I have a lot more great interviews with influential people in the permaculture community forthcoming. And I also have some interviews in the works uh, to talk about some of the historical movements in the agricultural community in the United States of solidarity and labor organizing. So hopefully you will be interested in that as well. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.